Nuclear weapons. Well, we have to have them to keep safe, don't we? At least, that's what's been hammered into us by the military-industrial-political complex, that we have to keep bankrupting our future to build bigger, badder, more devastating nuclear weapons of mass destruction, even though we already have more than enough nukes in our arsenal to easily blow the Earth into a lifeless asteroid belt many times over. There seems to be no way out of this ever-expanding deal with the devil that nuclear appears to be. But then, you hear a genuine expert on these issues with a way out of the madness, and she tells you, Right now, it's our time to stand up and say, hey, this is insane. There are so many more things that we could spend the money on. The U.S. government alone is spending $70,000 a minute on producing nuclear weapons, 70,000 a minute. Imagine what $70,000 a minute could do for public education, addressing climate change. And so much more, $70,000 a minute. Well, if you want to learn how to join an international movement to knock the financial knees out from under the nuclear weapons industry, You, too, can be part of the growing wave of people dedicated to getting us out of that awful seat that everyone on this planet shares. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a great tutorial on how to deprive nuclear weapons manufacturers of their obscene funding with the goal of driving them out of business, one bank account at a time. Susie Snyder of PAX Netherlands shares with us easy steps to take to make certain that your money doesn't inadvertently bank on the bomb. Then we follow up with our coverage of the shutdown of South Texas nuclear during the recent Texas Arctic vortex and statewide electricity failure. We talk with Erica Gray of the Sierra Club, who follows Nuclear Regulatory Commission status and event reports and posts them online five days a week. It has been her discerning eye that has allowed us to understand exactly how South Texas and the NRC failed to give a transparently honest report on the nuclear shutdown just when the electricity was most needed. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than we could ever hope to get out of Cancun Cruz, a.k.a. Ted Fled. all of it coming up in just a few moments. 
Today is Tuesday, February 23, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting here in the United States, last week, Nuclear Hot Seat offered a rundown on what was then known about the South Texas nuclear power plant failure during the recent Arctic cold snap that left much of the state without electricity. More has been revealed about South Texas, and to learn all about it, I spoke with Erica Gray. She is the Nuclear Issues Chair of the Sierra Club. This is what we have learned as of Saturday, February 20th, 2021. Erica Gray, thanks for making the time to talk with us today on such short notice for Nuclear Hot Seat. I'm glad I could be here to talk. Let's give people a little bit of your background and how you got involved with anti-nuclear work. It goes back to almost 10 years when the disaster happened at Fukushima. It really got me going. I really started paying attention. And at the same time, we were here in Virginia battling to keep our ban on uranium mining. So between fighting at the General Assembly to keep our ban on uranium mining and watching the reports coming out of uh, Japan, it was my big wake-up call. And so it's been almost 10 years that I've been following and posting the NRC event reports and reactor status reports Monday through Friday. That is what you're best known for within our community because your regular presence in putting this information out, and I've certainly come to rely on you for nuclear hot seat. Explain to people a little bit about what a status report is for the NRC and what an event report is. Not always, but normally in the morning, usually by 8 a.m., the NRC puts out a daily report. And it'll have not just with reactors, but other issues with uh, nuclear materials or with medical reports uh, to deal with nuclear medicine. So basically, Monday through Friday, they put out these reports. As it goes for reactors, the utilities will send in a report to the NRC. And what will be in that report? Well, the criteria seems to change over the years as it goes for exactly what has to be reported. But typically, the criteria for reporting it has some significance. So if there's a reactor scram or where there was an automatic shutdown or they had to turn off the reactors, then that has to be reported. And so that's one of the things. Or like we see quite a bit of them, the fitness for duty reports where they'll find someone within the power plant that were either caught to have alcohol or drugs in their system. So that and basically if the reactor is having some issues. Let's talk about the recent Texas Arctic temperatures and the way that they impacted on South Texas nuclear power plants. The news stories are now blaming failures in oil, natural gas, and in a mistaken and completely propagandistic move, wind power for the power failures in the state. However, in most of the reporting, nuclear seems to have gotten a pass, and there's a reason for that. What really happened at South Texas during that time, and what is the little glitch that has so far tricked the world into giving them a free pass? I knew when, because I have family in Texas, so I was really concerned. But when I checked the status report and the events report Monday morning on the 15th and saw that there was 
nothing reported on any of the four reactors that are there in Texas. And I looked at the status report, which shows the percentage of power that the plants are at, and they were at 100%. I was questioning that. Basically, the next day on the 16th is when actually the report showed up because they managed to get the report out to the NRC a few hours after the daily report was already posted. And so then at that time is when it showed that it had gone offline on the 15th in the morning at, uh, I believe it was 526 Central Time. And so uh, it avoided being included in a lot of the news media because really that one reactor supposedly powers about a million homes. So I, I kind of figured something had happened there. And so then I looked on the reactor status report and it showed 0% power for Unit 1. So it was down. I think the important point, which you made me quite aware of, is that as of local time, central time, 526 on Monday morning, the nuclear power plant at South Texas went down. But they delayed reporting until it was after the time that the report was issued for the day, showing it at 100% operation. It was down to zero, but it didn't get onto the report. And because of that, officially, anyone doing a cursory job of research, this is going to show that the plant was working just fine and nuclear was just fine on Monday when, indeed, it was already out. Exactly. There's many times that the NRC doesn't even get the report up until 10, 11. Sometimes they just don't put the report up at all. So when I saw that they delayed in almost four hours reporting it, I kind of figured they yeah, maybe didn't want to have that on Monday's list alongside with all the other outages and problems. You've also made the point that Monday is a day that gets checked into a lot by news sources just to see if there is anything, because the NRC, in its wisdom, does put that in quotes, does not put up a report on Saturday or Sunday. So the Monday report gets checked a lot, and if they want to bury something, they'll put it on Friday or they'll just hold it over the weekend. Yeah, that's usually the case, especially bad information, doesn't matter if it's from the nuclear industry or from the General Assembly or whatever, bad build. Or, yeah, they'll put it on Friday because in that way it has the weekend to cool off some. Yeah, kind of common. Here's another point. When the Tuesday NRC reactor status report caught up with the fact that it was at 0% at South Texas nuclear, the cause was listed as, quote, loss of feed water pumps caused unknown. Considering the problem that Texas has been having with water and frozen pipes and broken pipes, might that be an indication that the pipes had frozen? From my understanding, some of these pipes in that region just aren't really protected and they're out in the open. So I, I wouldn't doubt that there was some frozen pipes going on. The basic report stated that Unit 1 automatically tripped due to low steam generator levels the low steam generator levels were due to loss of feed water pumps 11 and 13, cause unknown. There were no electrical problems. I always find this interesting. This event was not significant to the health and safety of the public based on all safety systems performing as designed. Now, that is actually in the report. They say no harm to anybody. Well, I like how to say not significant. 
their fa- their favorite word, something is or is not significant, but they never quite quantify where that line is placed. Right. And the other thing I really get annoyed about is we can see these reports, but then a lot of times they don't ever give you uh, an update. They just kind of leave it there. So, you know, this report, this event happened on the 15th, but they really didn't report anything else about exactly what happened or, you know, the dynamic behind the event. Uh, All I can see is that basically they started it back up on the the 18th or so and were fully at 100% power on Friday the 19th. You know, this thing about they're always on and always reliable, this really shows how unreliable they really can be. And, you know, we don't know, the public doesn't know what the other issues might have been or what exactly happened. Like I said, we don't have the full story. And it's unlikely that we will get the whole story from them. Just to quantify this so that people know, there was a report that they were at zero power on Tuesday, on Wednesday, and not until Thursday did it show that in the report in the morning, the status report, that it was at 36%, not getting back up to 100% until Friday. Yes, that's correct. In other words, having gone out early on Monday, there were at least three full days of no power, and then it was only starting to ramp up and was at approximately one-third by reporting time on Thursday. Yes, that's right. Is there any word yet as to possible damage at the nuclear power plant at South Texas from the outage and the weather? I haven't heard anything yet. Most likely, if anything, if there are problems or issues, I don't know if they would meet the quote-unquote criteria of reporting. They seem to, over the years, allow the industry a lot more room in having to report something. So um, I don't know. That's a good question. Well, I know that if anything further shows up, we will hear it from you first, and it will be based on NRC documentation and then we'll see what else we can find along the way. Yes, you can count on me. I'll be coming out with those reports like I usually do. (laughs) Thanks, Libby. That was Erica Gray, Nuclear Issues Chair of the Sierra Club. In Japan, in the wake of the 7.3 aftershock from the 2011 earthquake and now a 6.0 aftershock, pressure inside one of the reactor containment vessels at the wrecked Fukushima nuclear Daiichi plant has dropped. This is in addition to known leaks of tritium-contaminated water being held in tanks, three separate tanks, at the site, with the majority of tanks still not having been examined for possible damage. In a separate story, large, highly radioactive particles that were released from one of the damaged Fukushima reactors have now been discovered as the result of a study that involved scientists from Japan, Finland, France, the UK, and the United States. A Japanese high court overturned a lower court decision that dismissed the state's responsibility in the Fukushima nuclear disaster and ordered the government and TEPCO to pay $2.63 million to evacuees. The mayor of the Fukui prefecture town of Mihama has approved the restart of a 1970s-era, more than 40-year-old nuclear reactor. 
and in Armenia, an over 40-year-old nuclear reactor that went through a devastating earthquake in 1988 is being refurbished with plans to run it for at least another five years. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. This one is so heinous and duplicitous, I don't even know where to start. The New Yorker, once an honored publication published a massive article entitled The Activists Who Embrace Nuclear Power. Make no mistake, it is a full-on propaganda piece, unbalanced by any genuine concerns expressed by genuine activists who oppose nuclear. This one got all its talking points from pro-nuclear sources and focuses on two women who are employees of the Diablo Canyon Nuclear Power Station in California, and who were coached into creating an organization that is supported and promoted by the nuclear industry to spread lies and keep Diablo Canyon operating beyond its announced 2024 and 2025 closures. I only have time to cover a few of the lies put forth, but among them, the two women cited as so-called activists have been financially supported by their nuclear employees, being allowed to take time off from work, have their travel expenses reimbursed, and who knows what other kinds of bonuses, perks, and raises have come their way as they did their nuclear master's bidding. They ripped off their name, Mothers for Nuclear, to diss and undercut the 48-year-old San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace, which is a genuine activist group that was formed in large measure to protest Diablo Canyon. Indeed, Mothers for Peace was not even mentioned in the article. Nothing counter to the pre-chosen narrative was. These women have been intensely coached by the Schillberger himself, Michael Schellenberger, who they booked to speak to Diablo Canyon employees to organize them, quote, for the sake of their jobs and the planet, while the two women baked chocolate chip cookies for attendees, still doing kitchen duty. With sly wording, this article repeats the lies that nuclear is green and carbon-free. Every volitional adjective that could be used on nuclear minimize the risks. Huge amounts of energy, small footprint. The risks are minimizable with no evidence or plan to minimize it. No footnotes at all. The article cited as proof that nuclear was safe, the oft-told lies that not only did nobody die at Three Mile Island, quote, the accident had no detectable health consequences, which will come as a real shock to epidemiologist Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project, who has the medical evidence and the numbers and sources to back it up. Nuclear engineer and whistleblower Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education, who has done a massive and intensive investigation into the causes of Three Mile Island and why there were not enough radiation monitors and they weren't in the right places to register how much radiation really was released. And there are the more than 4,000 members of the online Facebook Three Mile Island Survivors site who regularly compare notes on cancer deaths and radiation-related illnesses they and their families have suffered through the years. It slams Fukushima survivors as having, quote, few health risks connected to radiation exposure in Japan. While on nuclear hot seat number 498, Dr. Alex Rosen of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War explains exactly how Japan has rigged the medical data 
to not reflect the actual situation, specifically thyroid cancer cases, rates, and deaths among Fukushima's child survivors. Other basic criticisms and issues were dismissed with a single sentence, usually couched in parentheses. The question of long-term storage remains fraught. Fraught? That's the best word you can come for the forever nightmare of nuclear waste? The small modular nuclear reactors being loudly touted as nuclear solutions, with only a tiny sentence in parentheses, these reactors are still in the experimental phase, meaning they don't exist. What is being touted is a fiction, a fantasy, a lie. There's an excellent rebuttal to this slobbering piece of pro-nuclear garbage that was sent to the New Yorker editors by Dave Kraft, the head of Nuclear Energy Information Service based in Chicago. We'll have a link up to his talking points on our website. But damage has been done. Lies enshrined. Liars burnished to a nuclear glow as they, quote, are here to offer the motherly side of nuclear. Nuclear for the future. Nuclear for our children, for the planet. Hogwash and all those words I can't say on a broadcast program. And that's why New Yorker, naive, non-investigative talking point pusher Rebecca Tuhus Debro, and you two traitors to the future, your children, and the planet. You are this week's, month's, and so far this year's most despicable Nuclear hot seed, none nuts out a week. Here's this week's featured interview, and it's with one of Nuclear Hot Seat's favorite people, Susie Snyder of Don't Bank on the Bomb Forever. From uranium mining to nuclear weapons production to radiation leaking reactors to still not having a way to safely store the deadly radioactive waste produced by all these endeavors, nuclear is government and business not caring how they contaminate the world as long as they keep making obscene profits and fool themselves into thinking that they are immune to the consequences of their actions when they are not. Meanwhile, we all have to deal with the dangers of radioactive contamination that will not go away on its own, ever. Quite frankly, nuclear is a deadly mess. That's why you've learned to count on Nuclear Hot Seat to get into nuclear stories with facts, continuity and context, as well as skepticism, with a much deeper and nuanced telling than you would ever expect on mainstream media. We get behind the scenes, under the skin, and into the heart of nuclear matters every week, with fresh information, an unrelenting perspective, and even, whenever possible, humor. And let's face it, you are not going to get this information out of mainstream media. Witness this week's numbnuts with The New Yorker, that's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to help us with a donation of any size. And that same red button is where you can now set up a monthly $5, same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. Please do what you can now, because this is the only way that we can keep going with your support. And know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. 
Considering last week's astonishingly hopeful interview with Alan Ware of Parliamentarians for Nuclear Nonproliferation and Disarmament and his support of programs that take funding away from nuclear weapons producing companies, it seemed a good time to bring back one of my favorite interviews with one of Nuclear Hot Seat's favorite people, Susie Snyder of the Netherlands-based program Don't Bank on the Bomb. We regularly run Susie's two-minute explanation of the international grassroots Don't Bank on the Bomb program as a kind of PSA for sanity. Here, she goes into much greater detail on how any of us, all of us, can work together to cut off the money going to nuclear weapons producers. A few things before we start. Note that this interview is from May 2018. So her references to the American presidential administration are to President Biden's predecessor. But I checked with Susie a few days ago and received confirmation that the website contains updated information and everything she discusses here is still accurate. Also, the interview took place before the passage of the treaty to ban nuclear weapons was ratified by more than 50 countries and took on force of law as of January 22, 2021. That means we now have international law on our side, and this will strengthen our discussion with financial institution managers even more. And one final note before we start. This program includes a surprise, unplanned visit from an important new anti-nuclear activist. Susie Snyder, thank you so much for being with us here today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Great to be here. Thanks so much. First of all, what is PACS and what are the organization's goals? Well, PACS is a Dutch peace organization and what we're doing, we are working to reduce uh, human suffering as a result of conflict. Um, and so to, to prevent war, prevent suffering, uh, and generally to, to make sure that we build norms that keep people safe and keep people alive. What are some of your cornerstone programs. I'm certainly familiar with Don't Bank on the Bomb because I've followed that protocol with my own finances. What is this and how can people participate in it? Don't Bank on the Bomb is a great project um, that is, what we do is we, we do three things. We examine the impact of the financial sector on companies that produce nuclear weapons. We name those companies, name them and shame them, and we encourage people to get in touch with their financial institutions so that they develop policies so that they don't have any exposure to these companies that do produce the key components for nuclear bombs. So it's, it's naming the ones that have investments, it's supporting the ones that have great policies not to invest, and it's, of course, identifying the companies that make the bombs, because if we don't know who's doing it, we don't know what we can do about it. Speaking of those companies, there has just been a new report that came out naming 28 separate companies as being involved in the manufacture of nuclear weapons. How did that report come about and what are some of the findings you've made because of it? Well, let me tell you, Libby, it was a good deal of research and we are extremely rigorous in our research. So we've been looking at contracts and announcements for contracts, requests for proposals and so on for the last... Uh, for the last six months. Um, and so what we did is, as we looked at these, we looked at these different issues, 
and we, sorry, sorry, I'm nope. sure that many of your listeners also have children. <laughs> it's so the, hearing in the background. <laughs> Susie, this is the reason we do the work that we do for the children and beyond. So this could not be more perfect. <laughs> it is just the reality, you know, working moms everywhere. Um, anyway, so what we did is um, we looked at the contracts, we looked at the, the government plans, different government plans for new types of nuclear weapons, for the weapons that are under this so-called modernization program. And then we looked to see, okay, who's actually doing this in-house, so to speak? Like what, what countries are doing it? There's only nine countries that have nuclear weapons, right? It's not so many at the end of the day. And we look at who does stuff in-house using state-run agencies and who contracts out. Now, not everybody contracts out. Russia does stuff mostly in-house. Uh, North Korea does everything in-house. Pakistan does stuff in-house, but India, um, the US, the UK, France, they all, con they all hire external contractors. So then we follow the money. Who bids on the contracts? Who gets the contracts? And what are they doing? What are they actually doing under these contracts? And that's where we found exciting. Well, it's exciting in, a, in not a nice way, <laughs> to be honest. But we found that, you know, we found over $116 billion in existing contracts right now for keeping nuclear weapons on the planet. And some of them until 2075, which all of these countries have said, the heads of state at one time or another said, no, we need a world without nuclear weapons. And I'll tell you, you don't get to a world without nuclear weapons by hiring Boeing or Raytheon or Lockheed Martin to build a new nuclear arsenal for you. Some of the stories that I've read about coming out from the contracts are truly, it's like going into bizarro land. Uh, give us some examples. For example, when the head of Raytheon was asked if there was a growth opportunity in the U.S. exit from the INF Treaty. So this was really surprising. I mean, okay, usually with nuclear weapons, nobody's really, at least nobody should be really proud to be making nuclear weapons. These are weapons designed to, you know, your listeners will know this already. These are weapons designed to annihilate cities. They're not for battlefields. They're not for strategic pinpoint accuracy. This is a city buster. And that's, I think that's really important to keep in mind. And for the most part, over the last, almost the last generation, people have been shying away from, from taking pride in this, but then there are a few. Um, and there's been a slight change in the rhetoric around this. So when, you know, Donald Trump took office, he asked these questions, why would we have nuclear weapons if we could never use them? And he started saying, well, maybe we need, you know, we need to go back to make more and the biggest and the best weapons. Um, and he's basically inciting an arms race by withdrawing from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, this treaty from 1987 that prohibited an entire class of weapons. He opened the floodgates on this. And so in Raytheon, and Raytheon of all companies, Raytheon kind of was getting out of the nuclear arms game. It was seen as a, as a losing interest. But then the withdrawal from the INF came about and they said, oh, wait, we might have an opportunity here at least in the short term. So you, you saw the investor relations call. They said, they were asked the question, oh yeah, you know, is there any opportunity for us? And over the next quarter, Raytheon got 500 million in new contracts related to missile technology. 
Um, so Raytheon's starting to cash in on this new nuclear arms race. And I just have to ask the question, what are they, you know, they're only looking for short-term game. What are they looking for in the long-term? Because this is not the kind of product that we should be supporting. It's a terrifying thought that nuclear weapons are looked at as a growth industry and an opportunity for investor profits when really their end game is the destruction of everything and their profits will mean nothing. There are other programs that have been brought up in the reading that I've been doing. And another one had to do with Boeing and a new program that the company that brought us the twice crashed 737 MAX is being asked to develop. What is a flight termination receiver and what are the implications of the attempt to develop it? Okay, so this is something that within the nuclear policy community, there's some debate, right? So the flight termination receiver is, the idea is you, you can call the missile back because it takes about, it takes between 25 and 40 minutes for an intercontinental ballistic missile to be launched and hit its target. And that means that once you press the button, there's, there's two hours until the end of civilization as we know it, because any target, they're gonna, they're gonna see the incoming missile and they're gonna launch in return. They're gonna to try to take everything out before you take out what they've got. That's the whole, that's, there was this whole concept behind mutually assured destruction. So with what Boeing is doing now is they're making this new missile technology so that if you launch and you decide, oh wait, whoops, our, our information was wrong. Oh, actually it was a weather balloon. Oh, no, that wasn't an incoming missile. It was, you know, it was a pigeon. You'd, whatever it is, and I, I don't mean to make light of it, but seriously, what, there's been so many near misses. It could be anything. The idea is that the missile would then go off course or would, or would self-destruct. So it wouldn't have the same, um, it wouldn't hit its target. So the idea is to be able to, to shift it in flight. Now, on the one hand, you know, this could be great because then it, you know, it won't hit its target and you could, you could stop some insanity. But on the other hand, if you see the missile coming in, you're gonna fire with everything you've got. And so it's a losing situation, it's a losing proposition. And honestly, as you said, Libby, I mean, how much can we trust Boeing right now? It's how much do we trust anybody who is working in nuclear arms because they can somehow justify it. I've also seen that one of the problems with having a flight termination receiver is that it might call for a launch of a weapon and then using it just as a scare tactic because they think, well, we can pull it back and there will be no harm, no foul, when indeed, you're right, the retaliation could be volleyed out before we could pull it back and they might not be able to do so and there goes the planet, or if not the planet, at least the people and the life forms on it. Exactly, and what we've learned from new climate research, from new modeling over the, just the last 10 years is that it doesn't take a thousand bombs going off to destroy the civilization that we, that we know. It would take a hundred weapons between, for example, India and Pakistan and two billion people, two billion people would be at risk of famine. It would cause grave environmental catastrophe. It would, it would be a nuclear winter. And in the 80s, we were totally aware of this. We're like, okay, this is not gonna happen. We're gonna stop it. We're gonna shut this down. This is insane. And right now, it's our time to stand up and say, hey, this is insane. 
there are so many more things that we could spend the money on. The US government alone is spending $70,000 a minute on producing nuclear weapons, 70,000 a minute. Imagine what $70,000 a minute could do for public education, addressing climate change. <laughs> weapons problem, it's complicated, but it's, it's a relatively easy fix. And it's just a matter of deciding to do it. And now's the time for people to, to demand that we do. You know, you're right. On the one hand, it's a terribly depressing image for those of us who oppose nuclear and have managed to become conscious about it. Yet, in the intertwining of the private sector and nuclear weapons, there are potential points of leverage. Explain what you mean by that. This is what's, what I'm finding is very exciting. So two years ago, most of the, the nations in the world adopted a new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. They said, you know what? This has gone bonkers long enough, and the consequences of any use of nuclear weapons are so grave, we need to prohibit everything to do with them, prohibit all the making, having, using, preparing to use, pro prohibit it, make it illegal, make sure that we are collectively responsible if any weapons get used. You know, reinforce the non-proliferation standard by doing so. Protect the environment. This is so most governments in the world said, yes, we're going to do this. And after that, financial institutions, banks, pension funds, insurance companies, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the weapons are illegal, the companies that are making the weapons, they're going to start to go down. Let's get out. Let's get out now. Let's prevent any reputational risk or regulatory risk. Let's end our financial involvement with these companies. And 10% of them dropped out. It was amazing. When you said 10% of them dropped out, explain a little more about what that exactly means. We've been doing this kind of analysis of the involvement of the financial sector and nuclear weapon producers for, for a while now, since 2013. And we track every year how many, how many banks and how many financial institutions invest. And from the adoption of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons until a year later, there was a 10% reduction. There's, it's, in actual numbers, there's 30 fewer financial institutions that had investments in the companies that produce nuclear weapons. And some of these are, are really, like, this is Blue Cross and Blue Shield that previously had some investments and then got out. This is, you know, the Norwegian government pension funds that said, oh, wait a minute, we, we better change our relationship here. This is ABP, which is the fifth largest pension fund in the world. And they said, oh, hang on. Nope, nuclear is illegal now. Gotta get out of that game, which is quite impressive. And we're putting together the numbers for this year. And I think we're going to see some, some additional positive change. There's Nope. Even though a few companies are starting to make money off of new contracts, in most of the world, this is seen as a bad investment. I often think of PACS and the Nobel Peace Prize winning International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, which was behind the treaty in the United Nations, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. I often think of you two as kind of either conjoined or somehow being under the same umbrella. What is the relationship between the two groups? PAX is a partner 
of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. And ICANN is a campaign coalition, and we've got over 500 partners in more than 100 countries around the world. And it was ICANN working with these partnerships, also with, with concerned governments, with international organizations like the, the Global Red Cross that got this treaty to happen. It was, it was through partnership. It was through a movement. And PAX is a, is a part of this bigger movement. We're really proud to be a member of this campaign coalition because it means that we're, as we said in the, the local papers here, the Nobel Peace Prize got won in our little town, at least a little bit. It's quite amazing. Let's switch over to talking a little bit about ICANN and the impact that that is having and can potentially have on the entire nuclear weapons landscape in the world. It is not a campaign to ask the nine nuclear countries to get rid of their weapons. It's a campaign to get all of the countries that don't have nuclear weapons to agree to not get nuclear weapons. And then there are other provisions involved with it as well. Can you explain what those are and how those would mess up the nuclear countries? Sure. So the thing is with, with ICANN is that we're working in over 100 countries to raise the stigma against nuclear weapons. And most countries of the world have already rejected nuclear weapons. It's just this nine that are, seem to be a bit stuck and seem to be kind of a, I don't know, it's a little bit of old thinking and that doesn't quite relate to the current world order. But the ICANN is working even in the nuclear armed countries to say, hey, we have a plan to get to no nuclear weapons in the world. We know the nuclear armed countries, they're clearly not ready yet. They haven't quite matured to the level of, of many others to be able to, to take a more realistic and pragmatic approach to their security. But the other countries have. And so countries like Austria and Ireland, South Africa, are fully on board with this treaty because they recognize that there is no, no benefit to them and only risk from supporting nuclear weapons. What this means is that financial institutions in those countries have seen what happens with other weapons prohibitions and they get out of the, of the game when it comes to, to investing in companies that produce the weapons. Companies like Airbus, Airbus is a, is a Dutch registered company. Airbus has operations throughout Europe. Airbus is known for making airplanes. Airbus also makes missiles for the French nuclear arsenal. And what this does is it says that if, you, if Airbus, for example, when Germany signs on to the ban treaty, the operations that Airbus has within Germany can't be involved in the production of missiles for France or for anybody else, because that's prohibited under the treaty. And that would change the landscape for France. France doesn't have a another capability or that they have to move manufacturing capabilities. And that's, that's really important. And also, the treaty also has this great impact because it makes the question of, it challenges the assumption that nuclear weapons benefit anyone's security. And in fact, puts the onus on those who have the weapons, prove it. You've been saying this for so long with no evidence You've been you know, quite hysterical about your security concerns. No, be rational, be calm, prove that this is the only way forward. And if it is, in fact, the only way forward, why are you so united against other countries getting the same weapons? Why does North Korea use the same language as France in defending its, its decision to get nuclear weapons? You know, 
be a calm, rational actor in this field and not the hysterical nuclear armed countries that we've come to know. It seems that this program, the Treaty for the Prevention of Nuclear War and the countries that sign on to it would really signify a grassroots erosion of the ability of the nuclear industry to operate unimpeded. In other words, putting perhaps if not a block in the road, a stone in the shoe, that they can't move forward as they planned on it. And here in the US, we are starting to see some changes, at least on the state and the local level. In January, a bill was introduced in the Massachusetts state legislature that would require the state's pension funds to divest from nuclear manufacturers. The city of Cambridge has already done so, and here in California, Ojai will not make any future investments in the makers or funders of nuclear weapons. Do you think that the best way for us to proceed is to work on the local grassroots level rather than going for the big guys in Washington, D.C. or the heads of whatever countries, people listening to this show in 123 countries that listen to it, um, not going after the top of the governmental food chain, but starting local is the path we need to follow? Well, I think it depends on where people are. So in the US, you know, one out of every eight Americans lives in California. So when the California state legislature passes a resolution calling on the US federal government to endorse and embrace the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, that is significant. And that is a demonstration of the will of the people. Nuclear weapons are the opposite of democracy. They are the opposite of people's movements. And it's going to take people's movements being creative in the locations they are to get change. We just had today, which said Berlin, both the city of Berlin as well as the federal state of Berlin come on board and call on the German government to join this treaty. Oh, that's fabulous. I hadn't gotten that news yet. Yeah, and, and it's happening every day. There are new cities joining. There are new, there's new state resolutions being discussed. There are conversations happening. And the key thing is, nuclear weapons are an anachronism, and we can move past them, but we have to talk about them. And we have to talk about them not just with our friends that it's comfortable to talk about them with. We have to talk about them in other places and reach out because I'll tell you, we ran a petition campaign a couple of years ago in the Netherlands. And what we found is that nine out of every 10 people we asked said, of course we don't support nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are dumb. Wait, they're still a problem? I thought they were gone. Most people don't know. And as soon as they know, they think, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. This is a problem of the 80s. Let's, let's send it to the dustbin of history. That attitude and that emphasis and that enthusiasm is starting to catch like a wildfire throughout the world. And it will change the minds of those sitting in the high political offices. If you are friends with the head of state, by all means, call your buddy and tell them to get on board with this treaty. If, however, you are not friends with the head of state, think about other ways you can, you can help support this, this effort to make nuclear weapons history. That brings us to the practicalities. What are things that people on the ground can do and what tools do you have? Because the research is extensive and it is impeccable. Everything is footnoted. Everything is accurate in it. 
because we can't, our side can't afford to make mistakes. What do you have available that we can use to support anything that we are saying or doing on the ground? Well, the first thing I would encourage your listeners to just sign up to our newsletter. We're constantly putting information out. It's at nuclearban.org. And there's tons of info there. Well, now, it depends, again, where people are. If you want to figure out how to make sure your personal finances are in no way connected to the companies that produce nuclear weapons, whether it be through your bank or through your pension investment or other things, um, we have checklists on our website for people to use. We just, you know, quickly make, scan the website, see if your bank's listed, send them a message. We have tools you can directly send your bank a message. And a lot of people these days, myself included, use um, do banking on our phones, right? Mobile banking is, is like the thing. And I encourage people all the time, pull out your phone, go to your banking app, and just send a message directly to your bank right now and just say, hey, are we in any way connected to companies that produce nuclear bombs? When you ask that question through your mobile app, through walking into your local bank branch, whatever it is, you're starting a chain reaction of the good kind. The person on the other end probably has no idea. So they're going to have to ask somebody, is going to have to ask somebody, is going to have to ask somebody. We saw a number of financial institutions get out of the, this type of investment because people started asking questions on their Facebook profiles. And there's like, oh, that's not good. We can't have this. Oh, wait, wait, let's check. Let's check. <gasps> okay, well, let's get that. They, they divested first, and then they put into place a policy to make sure that they'll never have any kind of investments in, connected to nuclear weapon producers in the future. And it's part of their internal due diligence now. It wasn't a huge number of people that did this. It was three or four people that saw something in the newspaper, that saw a tweet, that heard something on the radio. And they took action because it truly is, as Margaret Mead said, it truly is a small handful of thoughtful and committed people that can change the world. And there are many people who would love the extra energy and attention and the quick question, do we have anything to do with the nuclear bomb? If so, how can we avoid it? And we can, and we will. The brilliance of this program is that any individual can make an enormous difference simply by taking a few steps that are already brilliantly strategized and plotted out and framed as you have done, as the people with PACs have done, and I can as well. If you have any final thoughts to share with the listeners today, what would that be? I would ask your listeners to tell a friend. Each one can reach one and each one can teach one. And that is how we will get this change. And that is how we will be able to retire from working on nuclear weapon issues and put our energy into dealing with the new challenges that face a new century. Susie Snyder, you have been doing brilliant work I've been aware of your work since Helen Caldicott's conference, I believe it was five or six years ago, and the progress has been astonishing and breathtaking. I always report on any positive steps that we find out that have been taken by either PACS or ICANN on Nuclear Hot Seat, because we've got to get our new good news from somewhere, and it seems to come inordinately from these two groups. 
thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. It's always a great pleasure. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity today. Susie Snyder of DontBankOnTheBomb.com, assisted by her now two-year-old daughter. We'll have links up to a list of the companies participating in the building of nuclear weapons, as well as a script you can follow when calling your financial institutions. That will be on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 505. When I first learned about Don't Bank on the Bomb, I followed the easy steps Susie put forward, spoke to the manager of my credit union, and learned that credit unions in California, at least, are not allowed to invest in certain categories of companies, and that includes all of the nuclear weapons producers. Pretty cool. So how about your bank? How about your pension fund? Call and talk with the manager and start the conversation. Something different to do during COVID times. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. March 1st marks the 8th annual World Future Day, a 24-hour round-the-world conversation on how to create a better future for us all. The global conversation will begin in Aotearoa, New Zealand, at 12 noon local time, which is the equivalent of 7 p.m. Eastern and 4 p.m. Pacific here in the United States. The conversation will then travel westward each hour as people join and leave the conversation. Youth, elders, policymakers, visionaries, artists, academics, future thinkers, and ordinary people interested in the future will come together in a free-flowing dialogue designed to stimulate ideas and inspire hope. We'll have a link to where you can sign up for this amazing international event at NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode number 505. Also for March 1st, this request from the Marshall Islands. It reads, In our decades of fighting for nuclear justice in our home, we join hands with other frontline communities worldwide addressing the legacies of nuclear testing and take great comfort in receiving support from around the world, reminding us that we are strong and resilient people and that we are not alone in our pursuit of justice for the Marshallese people. In light of that, this year's Nuclear Victims Remembrance Day theme, We Are Not Alone, is requesting short, you-are-not-alone messages to the people of the Marshall Islands. The videos should be 15 seconds or less, and there will be a link to where you send it at NuclearHotSeat.com, episode 505. A belated happy birthday to the peace sign. That's right, the circle with what people have said is the dove track, but its origins were something else entirely. The peace sign was created on February 21, 1958, by British graphic designer and Christian pacifist Gerald Holtham. Holtham was tasked with creating the banners and signs for a nuclear disarmament march in London and wanted a visual that would stick in the public's mind. The design is, in part, modeled after naval semaphore flags that sailors would use to communicate between ships. Holtham combined the codes for N two flags angled down at 45 degrees, standing for nuclear, and D, one flag pointed straight up and one flag pointed straight down, for disarmament. So when you see the peace sign, know that in semaphores it means nuclear disarmament. Let's start using it again, okay?
And Nuclear Hot Seat's exponential growth includes the fact that last week it was number one in business news in Ecuador and number nine in just plain out news in podcasts. When we say we're international, we mean it. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from Nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, WashingtonPost.com, JacksonvilleFreePress.com, TheNewYorker.com, NHK.or.jp, Don'tBankOnTheBomb.com, KyotoNews.net, TEPCO.co.jp, SimplyInfo.org, Helsinki.fi, Fairwinds.org, Mainichi.jp, neimagazine.org, globalnews.ca, and, as always, the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Thanks to all of you for listening, and a big shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world. Nuclear Hot Seat is available to nonprofit community radio stations around the country through the Pacifica Audio Port Network. So if you know of a radio station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates carrying Nuclear Hot Seat, contact me with their information or have them contact us by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Now, speaking of email, you can have the convenience of having Nuclear Hot Seat delivered fresh off the presses every week to your inbox via email. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down to the yellow box, and sign up for a weekly email link to the latest show that includes a brief rundown of some of the content. Nuclear Hot Seat depends on its listeners being the eyes and ears on the ground to help turn us on to what the stories are in your location. So if you, yes you, listening to this, have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment and go to nuclearhotseat.com and look for that big red button. Anything you do once you click on that will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that nuclear energy failed the people of Texas during the Arctic cold snap, and no amount of right-wing false information echo chamber is going to change the truth and the fact of it. Nuclear failed. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.